I have never attended the birth of a nation, but I have reported on a nation's death. The nation was Yugoslavia. My vantage point was Bosnia-Herzegovina. I wasn't part of the in-country press corps, although I did get two rotations to Sarajevo and central Bosnia late in the war. My primary beat was covering the big European powers' failed diplomacy. It went on for years, Britain and France's failure to force the combatants to stop. It carried on right up to the moment that the American president, Bill Clinton, urged to find his courage by the Republican leader of the Senate, Bob Dole, decided to put his foot down and American planes in the air, in the guise of a NATO mission. What finally drove Clinton to make the decision was the massacre at Srebrenica, a UN safe haven, in July of 1995. More than 8,000 unarmed Bosnian Muslim men and boys were murdered in the woods near the town by Bosnian Serb troops led by Ratko Mladic. Within 90 days of American-led NATO action, a ceasefire was agreed, and less than 90 days after that, the Dayton Agreement was signed in Paris, bringing hostilities to a close and a cold peace that lasts to this day. What is a nation? Is it something you die for or get murdered for? By the time of my first trip to Sarajevo, my colleagues who had covered the war had pretty much defined the framework through which the conflict was seen. Of all the countries that made up the Yugoslav Federation, Bosnia was the most mixed and Sarajevo was one of the most cosmopolitan cities in Europe, a place where the three main communities, Croats, Serbs, and Bosnian Muslims, lived and mingled together seamlessly until the war. My translator was a paradigm. His parents were Serb and Croat, his wife a Muslim, although by the time we met, his wife had left him, taken their son, and moved back in with her family. The war had destroyed the intercommunity harmony. The journalistic framework also said the destruction of Yugoslavia was inevitable. The country was no more than a communist construct. The hatreds between communities, too deep, but that was an oversimplification. After World War I, a monarchical kingdom of Yugoslavia was set up. It lasted until the Nazi invasion. After the war, Tito set up a communist Yugoslavia. So this part of the journalist's framework was wrong. The idea of Yugoslavia was not a post-war construct. It had a long history. The death of the Yugoslav nation was not inevitable. But here, in my journalistic shorthand, is how it happened. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Yugoslav Communist Party bosses, in order to hold on to their power, became nationalists, in the most pejorative sense of the word, and began appealing to the inner tribal beast that lurks in all human beings. Serbia's leader, Slobodan Milosevic, and Croatia's Franjo Tudjman led their countries to war with each other, briefly, but even before then the pair had decided to enlarge their nations by dismembering Bosnia. Croatia would absorb Bosnia's Croat community, Serbia, Bosnia's Serbs. The Muslims, or Bosniaks as they started calling themselves, could take what was left, or nothing at all. But the country was so mixed that massive population shifts would have to take place. How do you make that happen? Political propaganda. Nationalist, racist rhetoric nonstop in the papers and on the airwaves. Eventually, the rhetoric of hateful partisanship reaches its logical conclusion. Civil war is partisan politics by other means. If enough of a nation's people want to have a civil war, no force can stop it. It only takes between 30 and 35 percent of a society wanting to fight, but that violent third can rip a country apart and bring the judgment of history down on the whole population. In Bosnia, it was no different. 
the extreme violence of civil wars has been noted in many places. Civil war licenses grown men to behave like six-year-old boys torturing insects. What else can motivate men in their twenties, thirties, and forties to spend day after day firing artillery at a library long after its books have been destroyed and its interior carbonized, as they did with the National Library in Sarajevo, or to send shell after shell into a 400-year-old bridge that possesses grace but no strategic importance, as they did in Mostar, petulance and the childish exercise of power. I destroy because I can. In Bosnia, childish soldiers destroyed because they could. The minority ruined the country in full sight of international observers and news media. The destruction was mind-boggling, and it was everywhere, and it was in pursuit of what? An ethnically pure greater Serbia or greater Croatia? An idea of nationhood that was out of date almost as soon as it was promulgated in the 19th century because it was incompatible with reality? European nation-states have always been multi-ethnic, and it was incompatible with the ideals that gave rise to 19th-century movements of national self-determination. How will national minorities be treated if a certain kind of ethnicity confers first-class citizenship? The idea of blood-and-soil ethnically pure nations should have been permanently removed from European minds after the catastrophe of the Third Reich. But in Yugoslavia, it wasn't. And, despite the Dayton Peace Agreement which ended the fighting, it still isn't. This is our country, the Bosnian Serb man, brutish and fierce, growled at the American army officer. He closed the space between himself and the soldier and began to work himself into a lather. His thick, tattooed forearms rippled as he clenched and unclenched his fists. In other circumstances, the violence might have begun there and then. But the brute knew that the American was not going to engage him physically. He could be as threatening as he liked. This was five years after the Dayton Agreement had been signed, and I was traveling around the country making a radio documentary on what peace in Bosnia felt like. It was a mixed picture. Early in the trip in Sarajevo, I recorded young boys playing football in a courtyard of a housing estate on what had been the front line during the war. Actually, I recorded their laughter. I had never heard that sound on my reporting trips to Sarajevo during the war. But this scene, in the large town of Zvornik, was something else entirely. Zvornik is on the Bosnian side of the river Drina, the natural border that separates the country from Serbia. The town had been the scene of grotesque ethnic cleansing. Before the war, Zvornik municipality was 60% Bosniak and 38% Serb. After the war, it was 95% Serb. The Dayton Agreement gave everyone who had been displaced the right to return to their pre-war homes insecurity. I was following an American army captain, Dan Peck, as he led a squad of soldiers from neighborhood to neighborhood, checking on Bosniak families who had returned and reminding recalcitrant Bosnian Serbs that more Bosniaks would be coming back. That was the law. A hearts and minds mission, as Captain Peck called it. It was all going along just fine until we drove to a neighborhood called Divich, and in a park along the river came across a group of men in their 40s and 50s, just hanging around. One of the consequences of partition had been deep impoverishment of the Bosnian Serbs. Unemployment at this point was, in some places, over 90%. Captain Peck got out of his Humvee and called three soldiers to come with him. They had engaged the Serbs in pleasantries, but very quickly things had got out of hand. The burly Serb was ready to explode. Behind the captain, one of the soldiers turned away and radioed for the rest of the squad to come on over just in case this big tattooed man and his friends got carried away by their rhetoric. 
Suddenly the tirade from the Serb stopped, and he engaged in a bit of quiet conversation with the army patrol's translator, a young Bosniak woman. You didn't have to know their language to get a feel for the sinister emotion under his words. Captain Peck asked the young woman what had been said. The translator hesitated, and the captain asked her again. He said some rude things, the young woman replied and shrugged. The captain said he needed a full translation. She apologized for what she had to tell him, and then said he had called her a Muslim bitch and a whore, and said he knew who she was and where her family lived, and he would come for them. There was more than bravado in the threat. A couple of hundred yards up a hill from where this scene was playing out stood the Hotel Vitakovac on a little cliff overlooking the River Drina. During the war, Bosniak women had been taken there to be raped, sometimes raped to death. Their corpses were flung into the river. There was a story circulating among the American soldiers that so many were disposed of this way that Zvornik's mayor had asked his fellow Serbs to stop, as the corpses were clogging up the spillway on a dam just downstream. By now, a shrill chorus of Bosnian Serb women had joined their men to complain about the terrible injustices being done to them by the Americans, by the whole world. This was their country. Why were they being forced to take back the Turks, as they called the Bosniaks? Captain Peck was calm and rational, reminding them of the facts about the ethnic makeup of the town before the war, but it had no effect. The treaty law which gave them authority was a fact, but the law only means something when its authority is recognized. That, too, is a fact. These people didn't recognize the legal obligation they had under Dayton to accept the return of their former neighbors. Why should they? This was their country. It belonged to the Serbian nation. What is a nation? A nation is an idea that can make people insane. Yet national insanity still has purchase in many pockets of Europe. I was in Lviv in the western part of Ukraine recently. Journalistic shorthand describes it as the pro-Europe part of the country. A century ago, there was no nation called Ukraine. The western part of Ukraine was the Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia. Lviv was called Lemberg, and my grandmother had only recently left the city. After World War I, the area became part of Poland. Then it was conquered by the Nazis, reconquered by the Soviets. I was there to report on a political party called Svoboda. You won't have heard of them yet, but my guess is you will. Svoboda is the fastest-growing political party in the country, and it has taken control of three regional councils. It is unabashedly ultranationalist and xenophobic. I interviewed Svoboda's young propagandist Yuri Mikulchishin. The history Mikulchishin evoked is built entirely on illusion. Western Ukraine, his nation, was for centuries, like Bosnia, a cosmopolitan mix of peoples. Up until World War II, Lviv was more than half Polish and a third Jewish. Today, there are no Poles or Jews to speak of in the city. It's a similar story in the countryside. Areas that were 90% Polish are now 90% Ukrainian. Ethnic cleansing during World War II by Ukrainian ultras made sure of that. The butchery was medieval. Priests disemboweled in front of their parishioners. Poles locked in churches and burnt alive. I listened to his rants on the purity of Ukrainian blood, and it made me think of Bosnia's Serbian nationalists, and it made me despair that this kind of puerile idea of nationhood persists. And then I began to think of the smell of what remains after the atrocities have been committed in the name of the nation. The day after I was on patrol with the American army, I went to the morgue in Tuzla, Inside the building, and in ancient vaulted cellars around it, are the remains of Srebrenica's dead, exhumed from mass graves, decomposed and anonymous. 
The morgue contains 867 sliding shelves with 4,000 sets of remains in brown paper bags. Do you have any idea what that much decomposed humanity smells like? Sewer and egg and ammonia and something beyond words. I spent time with a couple of forensic pathologists who were patiently going through each bag and recording what they found to create a database that families of the victims could search and perhaps find something of their loved ones to put in a coffin and bury with dignity. Most of the remains were incomplete, but distinguishing marks on whatever was found could be useful. One of the pathologists, a young American woman named Nancy Fichter, explained that they had recently documented an 11-year-old boy's skeleton with a spinal deformity. A mother had come forward to say that her 11-year-old son had suffered from spina bifida, and she had not seen him since he was taken away from Srebrenica. So, a positive identification. I asked Nancy Fichter how she managed to go through bag after bag. She was a professional. It was her job, she said. Then, she added, her mother told her not to look at the bones in a purely scientific way. Remember, they had a heart. Today, the bones still clatter on the stainless steel autopsy tables. Remains from all over Bosnia have been brought to Tuzla. As the decades have gone by, advances in DNA research have changed the way forensic pathologists do the job. Saws cut through femurs to extract DNA samples, these can be matched with DNA samples collected from families of the missing. According to recent reports, the facility scientists have identified 16,280 individual sets of remains, people murdered in the name of a nation. When I think about what a nation is, I remember the morgue. I remember the dead had a heart. But most of all, I remember that smell. <laughs>